0: President Clinton has signed the bill that bans the federal government from recognizing same-sex marriages without fanfare after returning from a campaign trip after midnight. Uh, I'm not for gay marriage. I, I think marriage is a sacred institution between a man and a woman. I believe marriage is between a man and a woman.
1: I believe that marriage is not just a bond, but a sacred bond between a man and a woman. I have had occasion in my life to defend marriage. Do you support faithful. gay marriage?
0: No. Barack Obama nor I support redefining from a from a civil side what constitutes marriage.
1: I will tell Americans straight up that I don't support uh, defining marriage as anything but between one man and one woman. And I think through nuances, we could go round and round about what that actually means. But I'm being as uh, straight up with Americans as I can.
0: One of the things I want to communicate to my children is not to be afraid of people who are different. And because there have been times in our history (coughs) where I was considered different. Like being a racial, religious, tribal or ethnic minority, being LGBT does not make you less human. And that is why gay rights are human rights and human rights are gay rights. I am absolutely comfortable with the fact that Men marrying men, women marrying women, and heterosexual men and women marrying women are entitled to the same exact rights. At a certain point, I've just concluded that um, for me personally, it is important for me to go ahead and affirm that uh, I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. I believe you will win the Doma fight, and I think you will win
1: the constitutional right to marry. If If not tomorrow, then the next day, or the next day. Today's ruling from the Supreme Court affirms what millions across this country already know to be true in our hearts. Our love is equal. It's my hope that the term gay
0: marriage will soon be a thing of the past. That from this day forward, it will simply be marriage.
1: These cases have gone to the Supreme Court. They've been settled.
0: And uh, I think I'm, I'm fine with that. Hello, and welcome to the Five Thirty Eight Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. If that opening montage sounded like a whirlwind, that's because that's what the political fight over same-sex marriage sometimes felt like. Over the span of 25 years, the idea went from unimaginable and not seriously considered to settled law. Within about just a decade, it went from one of the most high-pitched culture war issues in the country to something that politicians and activists hardly even talk about anymore. The data behind that evolution is striking. At the beginning of the millennium, about two-thirds of Americans opposed same-sex marriage and a third supported it. Today, those numbers have exactly flipped 70% of Americans now support it, with Republicans showing majority support for the first time in Gallup's history just last month. For folks like us who study public opinion and have watched for decades as culture war issues like gun control and abortion have continued to closely divide Americans, the trajectory over the fight over same-sex marriage stands out. Why did we see such relatively swift change? Why were politics and public opinion so ultimately malleable? And what can that tell us about today's culture wars? Sasha Eisenberg's new book, The Engagement, America's Quarter-Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage, addresses some of those questions, and I've invited him on to today's show to talk about it. Welcome, Sasha.
1: Thanks, Galen, for having me. I'm
0: glad to be here. Sasha is also a national political reporter and the author of three previous books, And of course, I should mention, it is also Pride Month, so cheers to those who celebrate. Sasha, you spent about eight years writing this book, and before that, you also wrote extensively about how politicians wage and win campaigns. Would you agree with my framing there? The the debate over same-sex marriage stands apart from other social issues in its trajectory.
1: Yeah, you know, and was one of the things that drew me to the subject. I first had the idea for this 10 years ago in 2011 when I was writing a book called The Victory Lab, which was about the science of political campaigns. And I was spending a lot of time that year talking to pollsters or people who dealt with political attitudes in some form or another. And they would often make a version of the same point to me, which is that they had never seen movement on a single issue like they had seen it even to that point on same-sex marriage. And nobody had a really good explanation why, and that's something we'll get into here. But Eventually, the political and legal changes caught up with the shift in public opinion. But it was pretty clear already that one of the things that defined this was at that point, you know, it was four or five percentage points a year moving in favor of same-sex marriage. And then obviously, starting in 2012, you get this sort of just rapid acceleration of state laws changing both through the political and the legal processes and, and political elites following
0: So let's get right into it. Why did that happen the way that it did? Why did we see public opinion shifting, as you said, four to five points annually? A big part
1: of it is that there's been a huge generational split on this issue in a way that there has not been, as you suggest, on guns or abortion or some other hot button cultural issues. It's been pretty consistent, not just with marriage, but basically any LGBT rights issue going back decades that within subgroups, Younger Latinos are more liberal than older Latinos. Young evangelicals are more liberal than older evangelicals uh, across racial, gender, ethnic lines. So one part of it is just like simply churning the population that at this point, every time somebody turns 18, there's a 85% chance that you have a new pro-gay marriage voter being created. And every time somebody in the United States dies, you have a decent chance that an opponent of same-sex marriage just left the electorate. So that's some part of it. Other part of it is clearly exposure to people who are gay or lesbian. And that has been consistently, again, not just on marriage, but on other gay rights issues. Often social scientists have measured one of the best predictors of liberal attitudes is basically how people answer some version of the polling question. Do you have a friend, coworker, or family member who's openly gay or lesbian? Which people have been asking, I think, since the early 1980s.
0: One thing that we think a lot about on this podcast is the chicken or the egg debate over public opinion. To what extent are politicians bound by public opinion and must adhere to it? And then to what extent do they themselves shape public opinion? In the case of same-sex marriage, were politicians molding opinion or reacting to it?
1: Almost always reacting to it. And You know, John Zoller's book on public opinion suggests that elite cues are particularly important in places where individual opinion is not that well formed. And one thing about the marriage debate, when gay marriage sort of emerged as a political issue in the 1990s, which is where my book starts, it was sort of easily graspable. I mean, I think there are not many people who are more than a degree or two of separation away from somebody who is married. Marriage is an incredibly familiar concept, like children understand it certainly our understanding of homosexuality has changed. but I think the basic idea of should a man be able to marry a man is not a complex technical question like, you know, how many, what should the residual troop force be in Afghanistan? Or should the top marginal tax rate be 39 or 36 percent? Or should we have you know, like $1 billion of infrastructure spending or $4 billion of infrastructure spending where you can imagine elite cues, party cues are really important to people because how the hell would they come up with a position on this? I think it was, relatively easy for people to form opinions. And it turns out to be relatively easy for them to change it. And as a result, politicians were not significant drivers of opinion change on this.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that in part, it was familiarity with gay or lesbian people, but you know, of course, gay and lesbian people have existed forever. So what was it during this period of time that kind of caused public opinion to change and really outpace politics? One thing that
1: differentiates us as you compare to other social movements or civil rights causes is that individuals control the conditions under which they acknowledge, disclose, announce that they are gay or lesbian, or for that matter, transgender. And so starting in the 1970s, there's an active push for people to come out. And what we see now in in hindsight is that that's not just important as a matter of self-actualization and personal honesty, but it ends up being kind of effective as a political tactic in that as social scientists call it contact theory, but I don't think you need jargon to sort of understand the the idea that people who are exposed to other people start to understand what is important to them and what motivates them and their underlying humanity. And gay people, what one presumes, are evenly distributed across the population and they are born to straight people, almost by definition. Whereas residential segregation is self-perpetuating in a way, Gay people are born into straight households, and that probably forces certain or accelerates certain type of contact within families, within neighborhoods, within communities that might not happen around issues of racial, ethnic, religious identity, where it is less likely that all of a sudden you're going to realize that your neighbor is Catholic or African American or something. And so the agency of coming out, particularly when the people who are coming out are distributed throughout the population turns into a remarkable engine of familiarity and then eventually opinion change.
0: I think today we think that if you make an issue partisan, we're so polarized as a country that you can essentially fight it to a 50-50 draw. And that seems to be what has happened to a bunch of the most high-profile culture war issues. I mentioned guns and abortion at the beginning. I mean, really, it's been four decades plus for some of these issues. Obviously, regardless of how quickly things evolved, why did Republicans lose this debate? Because in certain elections, particularly as we all cite 2004, this was a highly partisan, polarized issue that Republicans were campaigning on. Like, why couldn't they keep people in their corner in the 50 50 draw kind of way that we think of?
1: I think there are a few things. You know, one, some of it is obviously the percentage of the population that are having this this type of contact is growing and it's crossing partisan lines. The other part of it is that, you know, I think the sort of messaging that was available to anti-gay marriage activists and politicians really declined after Massachusetts legalized same-sex marriage in 2004. There had been this, I think, incredibly effective, probably, messaging about what would come after this huge shift in our Social organization in our culture, you know, really apocalyptic stuff like this will be the end of Western civilization. Rick Santorum compared the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court decision to 9 11. And it was possible in that context to predict that if we change this, any number of crises or tragedies will befall individuals, communities, and the country. And then gay people get married. And even the strongest opponents of same sex marriage have trouble coming up with anything that even begins to approximate their worst case scenario. And I think that, you know, a lot of what was motivating this was status quo bias for people beforehand. And I think opponents of this lost that and had to come up with other arguments and frankly, weren't in the electoral context coming up with stuff that's particularly persuasive. And, And when they got tested in court, they basically got laughed out of court by judges as not real rationales. And I think political elites sense that. I think Republican politicians backed away from making arguments against same-sex marriage, even at a time when they were opposed to same-sex marriage, very few of them were strident about it. A couple other things I'll note. Some of the movement we've seen has been since the Supreme Court opinion in Obergefell in in the summer of 2015. And I think it is important to note that Republican elites have not basically ringled a backlash to that opinion, Donald Trump most notable among them. We heard one little soundbite where he says, you know, I accept this. The Supreme Court has ruled. It's one of the few things he said about gay marriage throughout the campaign. He has an incredible gift for demagoguing sort of identity differences. And he did not make this central to the identity of the Republican Party in the last five years. I think it's possible to imagine a counterfactual where either he did or Ted Cruz was the Republican nominee and maybe instead of critical race theory right now, we're on year five of activist judges forced gay marriage down the throats of red state Americans and and that it would start to polarize on partisan lines as a result of that.
0: Do you think it really is that simple in a way that the actual politician themselves, whether it's Trump versus another Republican who becomes president in 2016, kind of determines that trajectory? Like, why didn't we see a legal and moral backlash to the 2015 decision, apart from just Trump? Because, you know, of course, the backlash to Roe v. Wade has lasted decades now and crossed many different kinds of politicians, regardless of whether Republicans or Democrats are in office.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think one thing was that the implementation of this was pretty easy. I mean, before Roe, the most famous example of backlash to a, a liberal court decision, which was, which was Brown v. Board, And part of it was the backlash was to the decision itself. And then some of it was that the implementation was, frankly, difficult and necessarily passed the burden on to state and local governments to figure out how to actually do this at the school level. And we're almost 70 years after Brown v. Born, and basically we haven't figured out how to desegregate schools. One thing about the efforts at racial desegregation, racial equality, at gender equality, through property rights and the vote that took place you know up to 100 years ago i do think one thing that was important was that there was a kind of material scarcity issue that it was not just a contest over public values over equality justice liberty freedom decency stuff like that it was men had to give something up to give property rights to women white people had to concede things to desegregate institutions for african americans I think versions of the same thing have played out on immigration, on disability rights. And one of the things that was notable about marriage was that the public debate was fierce, especially early on when we were debating, are we ready to change this institution? But once you change the institution, the coalition of people who were affected by it was tiny. And that's because folks on the right of this debate had trouble finding people who could claim any sort of real, real injury to it. And, you know, while the coalition of people who considered themselves advantaged by the move towards same-sex marriage, not just couples who were able to get married, but younger gays or lesbians who now could aspire to marriage or construct their lives around it, their families, their communities, their employers who liked the stability of this. There's one other thing I'll just mention on this partisan polarization is that there was a major movement of significant Republican donors starting in in 2010. I read a bit in the book about Paul Singer, who's a hedge fund donor in New York, who's one of Paul Ryan-style conservative down the line on every issue except he found out that his son was gay. And it made him a major donor to to marriage causes. He recruited a bunch of other conservative Wall Street donors to back him. And what became clear when this came up before the New York state legislature for a vote was they had figured out how to convince Republican elected officials that they would have their back if they voted this way. And I think something similar has sort of a message has been sent from parts of the donor class throughout Republican politics, which is that there is significant financial backing for pro-gay Republicans. And I think that even when Republican support wasn't over 50% among voters. I think it was pretty clear that within the sort of Republican financial world that there was support.
0: It's interesting. Going all the way back to 1989, Andrew Sullivan wrote a column in The New Republic titled, Here Comes the Groom, a conservative case for gay marriage. And of course, there is some kind of underlying conservative argument here, which is about traditional family values. Gay people who are seen as certainly outside of society's norms for decades are saying like, hey, we want to take part in this relatively conservative institution at kind of the same time that liberals are starting to reject the idea, you know, feminist framing around marriage that it subjects women to the patriarchy. Younger people are getting married at lower rates and later having fewer children. Is there a part of this, I wondered in reading your book, that is really like part of the success comes from this having a conservative appeal to begin with?
1: I think it is notable that the dominant gay rights issues of the last few decades have turned into acceptance and marriage in the military, which are arguably the two most significant conservative institutions in American life. As you note, they are institutions that basically by the 1990s, straight people did not want to be part of anymore in ways that they once used to, and are also institutions that often demand more of their members or participants than they give back in benefits.
0: And Ooh, that's a hot take on marriage. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: the underlying conservatism of this, I don't think it was sort of read by the electorate as... It didn't scan as conservative because it broke down on on left-right lines. But I do think we see a messaging shift towards 2012 where pro-gay marriage campaigns start to really focus on both putting gay couples front and center and talking about why they want to get married or putting their straight families forward and saying my gay son should be able to get married for the same reason that I was able to marry my wife or whatever. And I think the underlying conservatism of that came through. But there wasn't a lot of evidence other than libertarian law professor types that that was sort of breaking through in the 1990s.
0: How much does framing matter when it comes to changing public opinion and enacting whatever social change you might want? I think that activists oftentimes would like to think that if they could just find the right framing on whatever their issue is, they could really convince the public. And that's why people involved in campaigns and politics, message test ad nauseam and think about how they go about presenting their case to the American public very thoughtfully, both on the right and left. When it comes to same-sex marriage, you mentioned that in 2012, there was kind of a framing shift that maybe focused a little bit more on the family, the kids, the love, et cetera. How important was that ultimately in the kind of swift change that we saw? I think we're
1: right to be skeptical of it. And any context that certainly campaign directed message shifts can have any significant effect on public opinion. One of the things that is notable, though, is that the issue itself sort of changes. And part of that shift that happens before 2012 is not just finding new ways to talk about same-sex marriage, but is thinking anew about who or identifying who the target audience is for this. And, And one of the things that happens around, you know, there's a big, research consortium that's launched in 2009, 2010 to look into all this stuff. And a lot of it alights on what they call the movable middle on this issue. And the rough take on where American public opinion is in 2010 is there's about 40 percent of the population, maybe a little more that supports marriage rights at that point. Polling shows basically a third of the population is anti-gay in some form or another and, and resistant to most gay rights initiatives. And then there's this third or so in the middle, disproportionately female, disproportionately say they know somebody who's gay or lesbian, and they support civil unions. And this is where I think that to some degree, gay marriage campaigns had been a victim of their own success, which is civil unions were nobody's objective. They get created in Vermont in 2000 when the Vermont Supreme Court rules that the state can't continue to discriminate in the awarding of equal benefits under the Vermont constitution, but tells the legislature, you don't actually have to let gay people marry. You can figure something else out. And they come back with this civil unions, which is, you know, marriage under another name, all the rights and benefits, but presumably not implicating any of the sort of religious Moral traditional hackles that would be raised if you were, you know, redefining marriage. And over a decade, that becomes the safe place for every national Democrat. It is where some of those clips we heard at the beginning, when we're hearing John Kerry and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, it was yes, I think marriage between a man and a woman, but I think gay couples are entitled to all of the same protections, and that's why I support civil unions but oppose changing the definition of marriage. And that had actually become fairly persuasive. And some of it is that I think Gallup actually did some survey experiments on this where they realized that the question sequencing, this was in the sort of early 2002, three, four, somewhere in there, that you get really different results if you ask people if they support marriage before you ask civil unions or vice versa. That really pointed the idea that voters saw this as a compromise position and that it was a way to to find some middle ground between recognizing the needs of same-sex couples but not actually messing with marriage. And so As these campaigns approach 2012, the target audience is not people who are opposed to recognizing gay couples. It is people who've been persuaded that gay and lesbian couples are entitled to hospital visitation and shouldn't be treated differently when they file their taxes and should be able to receive Social Security survivor benefits, whatever it is, but have been convinced, I think probably in this case by elites, that they could get those benefits without having to deal with the marriage question. And so a lot of the messaging from the pro-gay marriage side in 2012 is focused on this group and is not trying to convince them that gay couples deserve the recognition, but that civil unions are insufficient. And so they're the messaging shift. I don't know if it's a framing issue or not, but it basically is the thinking is, we no longer need to convince a majority of people why gay couples deserve These legal protections, we've succeeded at that. Now we need to convince them that gays and lesbians want to be married basically for the same reason that straight people want to be married, love, commitment, that they couldn't imagine their life without the person that they've chosen, and that that was not coming through in any of the political communication, either from previous campaigns or elected officials.
0: It's a really fascinating history and lesson on public opinion and, and how it evolves, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about the history of the idea of same-sex marriage. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. We've covered some of the public opinion shifts. A lot of what you cover in your book is a very detailed history of how the idea of same-sex marriage came to be, why it became the political hot-button issue that it did, and a lot of the history, the different organizations, the politicians, et cetera, the judges, lawyers, behind how it ultimately became the law of the land in 2015. So let's go back to the very beginning here, And it seems obvious today, but in a world without same-sex marriage, someone has to come up with the idea. What's that story?
1: So this had been in the early days of what we would now call gay rights activism in the 1950s and 60s. This had been floated on sort of the realm of a thought experiment. What would a world in which gay people can marry look like? You know, we're talking pre-Stonewall, pre-any legal recognition where homosexuality is still criminalized in just about every state. What happens after Stonewall in the early 1970s is in the kind of first blush of gay power, gay activism, you have some plaintiffs going into courts and demanding marriage rights right at the same time that the gays and lesbians are demanding for the first time all sorts of full citizenship that have been denied to them or from which they were just sort of excluded by oversight. And these cases are not launched by civil rights organizations. Often they're not actual lawyers behind these cases. Some of these are plaintiffs representing themselves. They go into court without any real legal strategy. And State and federal courts. And these cases peter out. It's significant at the time the advocate calls it the gay marriage boom, these lawsuits, but by 1975, they're all done. And at that point, the gay rights movement is moving on, has started to organize and is starting to get incremental gains elsewhere. Some basic non discrimination, equal protection ordinances at the municipal level, eventually recognition, sexual orientation, and hate crimes statutes. And starting in the early 1980s, the first domestic partnership benefits packages for public employees start to pop up in some big coastal cities and college towns. And then AIDS overwhelms so much of the gay and lesbian political agenda during the 1980s. And during this time, nobody is demanding marriage rights. There's not an active marriage case in the 1980s. Not a single gay rights group has endorsed marriage rights. And perhaps more notably, their opponents are not trying to deny them marriage rights. One of the things that the gay rights movement professionalizes and becomes a presence in national politics almost in perfect parallel to the rise of the religious right. And starting in the late 1970s and the 80s, they get significant resources, a significant footprint in Washington. And by by the early and mid-1990s, both gay rights within the left coalition and Democratic Party and religious conservatives within the right coalition and the Republican Party become central players. And yet throughout that time, religious conservatives are trying to stop gays and lesbians from becoming teachers, from adopting children. They are not trying to stop gays and lesbians from marrying. And so the story I tell starts in 1990, and it's basically a a freak of local, very local politics in Hawaii that turns this into a real political issue that the United States has to contend with.
0: You talk about all of these different issues ranging from at the very beginning, anti-sodomy laws and things like that to adoption, workplace discrimination. There's also trans rights. How did everyone ultimately become focused on the marriage question, both opponents and proponents?
1: Yeah, I mean, the short answer is that opponents made everybody, including ultimately gay marriage supporters, focused on this. I told the story of, of this case in Hawaii that has this sort of parochial, petty, highly personal origins, starts with a PR stunt by a local activist in 1990 who's operating without the backing of any gay rights group. The state ACLU wants nothing to do with him. And he gets his accident, sort of totally unexpected victory at the Hawaii Supreme Court in in 1993. This case where six couples to the state and for the first time, first court on earth to recognize that the fundamental right to marriage could extend to same-sex couples. And it takes a while for folks on the mainland to recognize this. It's kind of astounding because like, this is 1993. There's like phones and fax machines. Hawaii's not really that far, but I think if this decision had been in any one of the lower 48 states, its import would have been noticed more quickly. Also important to note that there wasn't really much of an evangelical political community in Hawaii. So it takes a while, I think, for people on the mainland to fully appreciate the gravity of this. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the first mainland institution, to take stock of this Hawaii Supreme Court decision and recognize that this thing's going to return to trial court, and they are one trial court judge in Hawaii away from gay couples there being able to marry. And then the problem from the perspective of the LDS churches: what happens if a couple from Utah goes to Hawaii, gets married, comes back to Utah, and demands that they be treated as married here. And the first thing that the LDS Church does is draft a piece of legislation through a law professor at BYU who does a lot of the legal work for the church. I think it's passed by the Utah State Legislature that says that Utah won't recognize anything besides a man and a woman marriage. But then the Church of Latter-day Saints basically decides that they need to get involved in the political process in Hawaii to try to derail the legal process. And they set up a front group in coordination with the local Catholic archdiocese. And Hawaii in 1998 passes a constitutional amendment. It's the first year that states have passed constitutional amendments to ban same-sex marriage. And it effectively takes us out of the hands of the judiciary there. After the Mormon church gets involved, eventually evangelical and fundamentalist Protestant activists sort of take note of this issue too. And they start pushing it initially within the 1996 Republican primary field circulating a resolution that they want all the candidates to sign saying that they will work to fight marriage at the national level. And that is basically what leads to the Defense of Marriage Act, which is this bill we heard, I think the first clip on the show was the bill being signed into law. And the crucial provision of that was that under federal law, marriage would only be recognized as as a man and a woman and nothing that happened in Hawaii could affect Federal law. And that whole process, the gay rights movement is somewhere between totally uninvested, uninterested in marriage as an issue, and actually divided on ideological and strategic lines. But by 1996, it's clear that their opponents are going to focus on denying gay couples the right to marry at the state level, at the federal level, through the courts, through the political process. And it unifies what had been a fractured gay rights movement on this question and begins to enjoin the sort of entirety
0: of the the gay political and legal infrastructure in the country and supporting gay marriage. Why had gay and lesbian activists been divided over this question of whether to pursue same-sex marriage as a goal?
1: So some of it was a sort of strategic question, which is, it seemed like too much and too far to have as a policy demand at a time when gays and lesbians were starting to get incremental gains elsewhere, including on family recognition. So gains on areas like domestic partnership. And there was some sense that this would derail those efforts and and not yield any results. I think the more interesting thing is that there were sort of two interrelated ideological critiques within the gay rights movement, especially during the 1980s. And one, you you pointed one of these, Galen, I mean, I think that one was there were big divides within the movement between liberationists and assimilationists and in all sorts of areas. And in this case, the liberationist view was that gays and lesbians had come to define a, a series of sexual mores and values that were distinct from mainstream American society and What part of gay liberation would entail trying to restructure your lives to match the middle-class suburban picket fences of your 1950s parents, I think is sort of one way of thinking about it. And then the other ideological critique, which was voiced almost exclusively by women, to the extent that there was gay and lesbian family law in the 1980s, it was a feel for women. It was lesbian lawyers representing female clients who overwhelmingly were were women who had been in heterosexual marriages and had children, came out of the closet, got divorced and had trouble winning access to their own biological children. And the lawyers who served them had, you know, gone to college and law school in the 60s and 70s had been shaped by the thinking of second wave feminism to view as as you said, you know, marriage as this institution that had been basically designed to subjugate women and they said, why should the goal of of gay and lesbian family law be to win acceptance into this patriarchal heteronormative institution? And instead, they sort of declared that the policy objective should be what they called multiple families. The idea that under the law, instead of having a bunch of rights and benefits that are available only to married couples, they should be available to sort of a broad spectrum of familial arrangements, partnerships of any gender combination, but also single parents, stuff like co-parent adoptions, multifamily households, communal living, unmarried partnerships, the whole range of them. And so those factions basically disappeared within the movement once gay rights opponents decided to make marriage their top issue.
0: To what extent is there a kind of philosophical debate over the goals of LGBT activists today? I think that they are not so much
1: ideological differences within the core of the coalition, but questions about the kind of nature of the coalition itself. You know, I mean, gays and lesbians were a coalition to start with, and they had some very different issue concerns. One thing I mentioned, you know, women were having the problem of having had, had children in heterosexual marriages and then often needing to go and adopt their own children to try to get them in court. Gay men did not have the problem of having accidentally born children, for example. And there were a lot of issues on which gays and lesbians, non-discrimination, equal protection stuff, obviously a total lockstep. But on a bunch of issues, I don't think there's a woman in the United States who contracted HIV or AIDS through sex until 1989 or so. And so there were just very different concerns from the beginning. And I think as trans issues have risen on the agenda, I think the question about the extent to which a coalition of sexual minorities has enough in common to hold together. There's definitely a feeling within certain parts of the movement that now that cis gays and lesbians have won their marriage rights, that, like, they're done and they've left behind trans folks. And there's definitely something to be said for the fact that the success of the marriage movement, definitely in legal terms, did not do much for trans people. To be fair, there were a lot of transgender people who were able to marry the person they loved, even when same-sex marriage was illegal in their state. But part of it is the way that the Supreme Court decision in Obergefell was written, which is that Anthony Kennedy treated it as a marriage opinion, basically, and did not treat it as a civil rights opinion. And so it was, you know, in ways, some beautiful prose about what marriage means, but it did not really engage with what the Constitution owes sexual minorities in terms of equal protection. And that meant that there was the possibility that winning the Obergefell case could be a broader victory for gays and lesbians in areas outside of marriage and also for transgender folks as well. It wasn't that. And so I think the real question is, are these organizations, Human Rights Campaign, most prominent among them that were founded in the 1980s primarily by gays and lesbians, to advocate for the concerns of gays and lesbians came to include transgender concerns. Are they built to engage in the type of political advocacy that's necessary to, to fight for transgender rights on what I presume will be, a, you know, we're at the beginning of a, a fairly long arc on that. And so I don't see real issues where people are divergent, but I do think that there's a a concern over priorities. And I think that that ends up becoming a question over what is this coalition
0: about? What does it have in common? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned how culture war issues are perhaps shifting to trans people and other questions as well. Questions like critical race theory, the 1619 project, whether or not people wear face masks, right? There are all different kinds of Culture war issue today, in addition to abortion and guns, and some of the longtime ones. As the culture war moves on, what kind of lessons do you think we can learn from the fight over same-sex marriage? Are they applicable to some of these other questions? It seems like from the beginning we've talked like not necessarily applicable to gun control and abortion. Is same-sex marriage sui generis, or will people who argue for social change in American life see these kinds of swift changes in other things? I think there are some sort of discrete
1: lessons about how to do politics that are useful. I do think there are as many ways in which this is not helpfully analogous to some of these other issues, but one of the things that's notable if you spend any time talking to, to activists, particularly on the left, but not exclusively, is Everybody is hoping that there's like some off-the-shelf manual of how the gay marriage advocates did it, that they can apply to guns or climate or immigration or whatever their, their pet issue is. And I think that there are a couple of big things about how you organize. And one thing that was notable was that you had, in 2009, the relaunch of this group, Freedom to Marry, which was structured as a different type of interest group. It called itself a campaign. It said it had one goal, to legalize same-sex marriage in the 50 states in the District of Columbia. And that it would put itself out of business when that was achieved. And I think most issue groups end up being built to serve a coalition like the human rights campaign or ultimately a broad umbrella of issues like every town or the gun control groups. And they end up having to balance the various issues in their portfolio against one another. And they have to think about their sort of long-term institutional considerations, which means thinking about what will satisfy donors, what will satisfy members, what will keep their relationships strong on Capitol Hill and elsewhere in government. And so they make trade-offs that might not necessarily be in the interest of any given issue, but make sense from the broader institutional perspective. And that was definitely one of the critiques that was Launch continuously against the human rights campaign was that they didn't fight hard enough against the Defense of Marriage Act. They did not fight hard enough against the federal marriage amendment. We also hear that they don't do enough for trans issues, all this stuff. And I think some of that is understandable when you think that the time that the Defense of Marriage Act came up, they were still trying to deal with things like, you know, getting funding for the Ryan White AIDS Act, getting the Justice Department to measure hate crimes against gays and lesbians as a separate category of data. And, you know, those were places where they had started to get moderate Republicans to meet with them. And if going to war over the Defense of Marriage Act means antagonizing those people in a way that jeopardizes your ability to make progress in another area, I get why they did what they did or didn't do what they didn't do. And I think that you look at some of these other issues and the groups that do the politics on them are often quite broad. And and I don't know the answer to this, but, you know, like how would the politics of guns look different if instead of having these broad gun control groups, you had a group that was just focused on waiting periods or just focused on ghost guns or just focused on pushing the CDC to classify gun violence as a as a public health concern. Discrete policy issues where they wouldn't be thinking of kind of the broader long-term project, but could focus on those issues. And I think a lot of the important work that was done on marriage, both research, strategy, execution, was ultimately done by and with a group that was not thinking about the broader LGBT movement. They were thinking about how to get marriage. That said, they were doing this also with like a whole lot of money that came from a handful of donors that has not made itself available to other social causes. And so, you know, I think that that's an example of the type of thing that people in other movements could look at and think, are we actually built to solve the problem that we're trying to solve?
0: Wrapping up here, we've mentioned some issues here like arguments over critical race theory or trans issues, what do you think the future of the culture wars in America look like? To what extent do they include lesbian and gay issues in addition to trans issues? To what extent do they focus on sexual or gender-related politics, period, versus other things like race or ethnicity?
1: One of the things that struck me as I read a lot of media coverage from the 1990s as gay marriage was emerging as an issue was it was almost always treated as this kind of like culture war sideshow issue. And in the 90s, the context for that was, should Ebonics be taught in school? Should Should Two Live Crew get a record deal? Should the NEH give money to the artist behind Piss Christ? And should men be able to marry men? Like it was the sort of treated like a Dr. Seuss level culture war skirmish, not like we're at the beginning of, shall we desegregate our schools? Should women get the vote type level question? And all those other things went away. Like we stopped talking about whether school districts should teach ebonics after like a month because it actually like wasn't a real issue. And, you know, you think about cannabis, like that was often treated in the nineties as a kind of like Maybe not a culture war issue, mostly because I don't think opponents were that engaged with it, but I think it was seen as a kind of weirdo niche concern, not an actual, like, realizable policy objective. And some of it is just by longevity and durability and then building a coalition of people who are invested in the outcome that certainly these things play on culture war axes, but they become cemented as not just transient media-driven issues, but, like, actual policy objectives that people are invested in fighting for. My hunch is that we're at the beginning of, of you know, a long cycle of dealing with trans-related issues. One thing that's really important to look at is how so much of our understanding of the science behind sexual orientation has changed in the last couple of decades. Basically, everybody accepts that heredity is a part of this. And I think that we are still sort of early days in having any sort of shared understanding of the the underpinnings of gender identity. And I think that what happens in labs is going to filter out to the population and will start to affect how we as a public think about this issue. And I think political attitudes and legal expectations will have to move in tandem with that. I think it's reasonable to expect that there are sex and gender related issues. One of the ways in which the sort of discrete questions around transgender rights are playing out is because we created a lot of single gender institutions a generation, two generations ago, out of a desire to accommodate the unique needs of girls and women in sports and education. And now we're having to reconcile the impulses behind those with the goal of inclusivity based on on gender identity. And that's not always easy or straightforward how you do that equitably and smoothly. And so I don't think this is going away, but I do think it is telling that or interesting that the Republican Party in the last few years, there's been a move towards trans issues. But by and large, it seems like this party is far more invested in divides along race, ethnicity, maybe religion than along matters of sexual politics.
0: All right. Well, let's leave it there. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you, Gallen. Sasha Eisenberg is the author of the new book, The Engagement, America's Quarter Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. My name is Galen Druk, Tony Chow is in the virtual control room, Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing, and Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store, or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.